President Biden says an Israel-Hamas ceasefire is possible. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Plus, gridlock in Congress is having consequences in Europe. Army officials tell VOA that if nothing changes, U.S. Army Europe and Africa will run out of funding for everything including support to Ukraine and U.S. operations and exercises with NATO allies at the start of summer. And later, another Russian dissident is sentenced to jail and a U.N. environment conference gets underway in Nairobi. Today is Tuesday, February 27th, and this is VOA's Flashpoint Global Crises. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden said Monday he hopes to see a new Gaza ceasefire by early next week, as delegations from several countries work to negotiate the first halt in fighting since November. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire. Some see Biden's remarks as overly optimistic, though, as both Israel and Hamas have publicly downplayed any possible deal. Negotiators have been working toward an agreement that could pause fighting for six weeks. The potential deal would include the release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, as well as the release of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Separately, on a late-night comedy show of all places, President Biden said that Israel is open to a ceasefire during Ramadan. Reuters' Ryan Chang has that story. U.S. President Joe Biden says Israel has agreed to halt military action in the Gaza Strip over Ramadan, the Muslim holy month that begins on March 10th. He made those remarks on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers. This came as Arab countries have voiced fears should the fighting continue into Ramadan, it will further stoke regional tensions and while momentum on ceasefire negotiations gathered pace in Qatar. On the show, Biden revealed there was an agreement in principle for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, which could be in place by this time next week. He said such a pause would give time for remaining hostages Hamas captured on October 7th to be released. The group took over 250 hostages when it stormed across southern Israel on October 7th and killed over 1,200 people. Israel's subsequent ground assault led to nearly 30,000 people killed, according to Gaza health authorities. In his late-night appearance Monday, Biden said Israel risks losing support from the rest of the world. He added that the Israeli government made a commitment to him to try to evacuate large portions of Rafah, which has millions of displaced Palestinians who fled other war-torn parts of Gaza before Israeli forces move in to target what he called the remainder of Hamas. The last deal to suspend fighting came in November, where Hamas released more than 100 hostages and Israel freed about three times as many Palestinian prisoners. In recent weeks, both Israel and Hamas have publicly maintained positions that are far apart for a potential truce while blaming the other for delays. Israel continues to say it will not end the war until Hamas is destroyed, while Hamas says it will not free hostages without an agreement to end the war. As Biden gears up for a bid at re-election this November, he has seen support among young Americans and left-leaning progressive voters sink as a result of his staunch support for Israel and the sky-high death tolls in Gaza. 
That's Ryan Chang of Reuters reporting for us. For some more context on a possible ceasefire and some of the latest developments in the war, I'm joined by Shane Harris, a national security reporter for The Washington Post. Well, right now there are negotiations that have been going on led by the United States with Qatar and the French as well and the Israelis and kind of going back and forth with Hamas. Um, What we're hearing from sources is that there's not a great deal of hope on the Israeli side or among, uh, frankly, the Hamas side of a breakthrough. Uh, I think President Biden's remarks were seen as perhaps a bit overly optimistic. The impasse really has been that Israel says that the The demands from Hamas for the release of Palestinian prisoners is too high. The demands for aid going into Gaza is too high. And they want to see, as Prime Minister Netanyahu put it over the weekend, the uh, the Hamas said come down from some of its demands. Now, we're also seeing in Israel a lot of uh, political turmoil. Families of the hostages saying that any price should be paid to get those hostages free. How does that square with Netanyahu's position? Yeah, it's it's a real disconnect. I was in Israel last month and you could see this. I mean, just from talking to people, there are pictures of the hostages everywhere uh, all over uh, Israeli cities. I think, you know, generally there's a lot of the population would like to have the hostages home and worry about defeating Hamas second. And I think the government prioritizes right now defeating Hamas. Uh, And then, you know, a close second, maybe some people would say, is getting the hostages back. So these priorities are not necessarily in sequence. And you're seeing a lot of families of hostages, as well as people who support their return, uh, essentially accusing the government of not doing enough, of prioritizing what they see as an overly ambitious uh, and maybe ultimately uh, fruitless endeavor to try and destroy Hamas as the government has articulated it. What does destroy Hamas even mean? How can you kill every single one of them? How do you kill an idea? This is what you hear a lot of Israeli citizens saying who want the hostages back and are willing to make big concessions to do so. Part of their attack on Hamas is capturing or killing Yahya Sinwar. And uh, you wrote about that in today's paper. Um, What's the status of the Israeli pursuit of him? Well, right now, Israeli officials say that they believe that Sinwar, who is the accused architect of the October 7th attacks, is hiding in tunnels in the south of Gaza. They believe he is likely underneath the city of Khan Yunus. There are some who say he may have moved a little bit further south nearby to Rafa, but that he is bunkered down right now. And as some officials put it to me recently, locating him is not really the biggest challenge. The issue is that they believe that Sinwar has surrounded himself with a human shield of hostages, which would make a military operation to go in and capture or kill him very difficult and would very likely uh, risk the lives uh, of many of those hostages. So it's not really about finding him. It's about actually mounting an effective operation to do anything without risking the lives of the people that he's surrounded himself with. Now, Presumably, if you're writing about this for The Washington Post, this isn't a huge secret. It's likely that other governments um, know about this as well. Has there been any pressure on Hamas or on Sinwar from from Qatar, from Egypt, from some of the other parties involved to get himself out to forward the peace process? Yeah, you're right. It's not it's not a huge secret, you know, the, the fact that he has has done this and that this is why negotiating has been such an issue. There have been in these talks over the hostages, there have been ideas floated about 
providing some kind of exile for Sinwar and some of his top lieutenants in another country, um, essentially allowing them to leave Gaza uh, and leave Israel, obviously, and, and, and that this might bring some kind of end to the fighting. Uh, it's not entirely clear that that would work because it's not entirely clear that Sinwar would be willing to go. I mean, I talked to a number of Israeli officials who said they presume that he is there to fight to the death, if that's what he needs to do, that he might not be interested in an exile. But that is a really important question, and that could potentially provide some kind of an off-ramp. Of course, the Israeli government would have to be willing to accept that, which means the Israeli people would have to be willing to accept it too. But that is something that you hear discussed, this possibility of an exit for him, simply because getting him where he is right now is going to be so incredibly difficult. Uh, last question for you. Given your uh, expertise and experience reporting on this issue, do you think that's possible? I think it's unlikely. Um, I think that I, I think I'm persuaded that Sinwar seems to be here kind of for the long haul. But look, honestly, as the war continues to 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 go on and Hamas is capabilities are degraded and his fighters are killed, this could change Sinwar's calculus. It's entirely possible. One issue right now, and we just don't have enough clarity on this, is how strong are the lines of communication from these negotiators going into him? And how long would it take to get messages back and forth and to iron out these details? But, you know, based on my conversations with sources, I think it's it's less likely that he would take uh, uh, an exit plan like this. Um, but I suppose anything is possible. Shane Harris writes about national security for The Washington Post. Shane, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Changing gears now, we head over to Eastern Europe and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Because of inaction by Congress back in Washington, the U.S. military has been forced to dip into its own funding to cover American training of Ukrainian troops. That's a strategy that experts say could leave the U.S. Army short on finances in Europe. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb has more. While Congress has yet to pass a defense budget or take up a House vote on supplemental military aid to Ukraine, the U.S. Army is now footing the bill for its training of Ukrainians. Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh. It is an essential mission. We can't turn our backs on them. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Our, our army, our services are going to have to start talking and making some tough decisions that are going to impact the entire force. Army officials tell VOA that if nothing changes, U.S. Army Europe and Africa will run out of funding for everything, including support to Ukraine and U.S. operations and exercises with NATO allies at the start of summer. A funding crisis that Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says is raising alarm bells. We are definitely vulnerable. We're unable to modernize. We're unable to change programs. It's like fighting with one arm tied behind our back. As analysts point out, Russia's war against Ukraine still looms large over the European continent. And if you start curtailing training and readiness of U.S. forces in Europe, then that is another gift of Vladimir Putin. A gift that Army veteran and former Capitol Hill staffer Brad Bowman says will encourage further aggression from Russia and come at a far higher price than the current budget or foreign aid supplementals. It's, it's providing Ukraine weapons today so we don't have to have Americans giving their lives tomorrow. It's really that simple. Ukraine's foreign minister recently told CNN that Ukraine would not have lost the city of Avdivka, where Kyiv's forces recently withdrew, had Ukraine received all the artillery ammunition that was needed to defend it. VOA asked Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Singh whether she agrees with his assessment. 
Do you agree with his assessment? I do. Uh, Adivka was a uh, strategic withdrawal, but that was a withdrawal because of congressional inaction. There is a direct link. This is the fifth straight month that the Pentagon has operated without a full budget, and it has not sent a new round of military aid to Ukraine since late December. Carla Babb, VOA News, the Pentagon. And now to Kyiv for an update on that war that Ukrainian soldiers are training for. VOA's Anna Chernikova has more. Ukrainian Air Forces confirmed the downing of a Russian Su-34 fighter bomber in the eastern part of Ukraine. Mykola Olishuk, the commander of the Air Force of Ukraine, published a photo of the destroyed Russian plane. Ukrainian military officials also confirmed the withdrawal of the Ukrainian defense forces from the villages of Stepove and Severne next to Avdivka. According to the official report, the Ukrainian military stabilized the defense line in the areas of the villages of Tonenke, Orlivka and Berdichi and continue the defense operations from there. Meanwhile, on February 25th, the Ukraine 2024 forum took place in Kyiv. The event brought together representatives of the Ukrainian authorities, government officials and President Zelensky to discuss various topics including Ukraine's potential and achievements in the defense industry and action plan on the battlefield. The Minister of Strategic Industries, Alexander Kamyshin, announced that the Ukrainian defense sector will increase by six times in 2024. He also mentioned that in 2023 Ukraine greatly increased the production of ammunition, the number of produced mortar ammunition increased 48 times and the production of artillery shells 2.8 times. An important goal for 2024 is to reduce the price of weapons production. For example, the price of the effective use of an FPV drone should be $1,000. In turn, in his speech at the forum, Deputy Prime Minister of Digital Transformation Mikhailo Fedorov confirmed the goal previously announced by President Volodymyr Zelensky that Ukraine plans to produce more than 1 million drones in 2024. Anna Chernikova, VOA News, Kyiv. You're listening to Flashpoint, Global Crises from the Voice of America. I'm Steve Karish in Washington. The UN Environment Assembly is underway in Nairobi, Kenya. We'll see what's happening in a few minutes. Now, though, another Russian dissident has been jailed. Oleg Orlov, one of the leaders of the Nobel Prize-winning group called Memorial, was sentenced to two and a half years in prison by a Moscow court. He was found guilty of discrediting Russia's armed forces for a Facebook post critical of the war in Ukraine. Alexander Grigoriev is with VOA's Russian service. Uh, Oleg Orlov is a former Soviet dissident and human rights activist who started protest against brutality of Soviet regime in the 1970s and 80s. He opposed uh, Soviet invasion to Afghanistan, so on and so forth. Um, in modern Russia, he was one of the organizers and activists uh, who worked for promotion and protection of human rights uh, for all Russians, of all Russian citizens, including Chechens, during both Chechen war. And he was one of the organizers of uh, so-called group Memorial. Memorial is an organization with different goals. One of them is... Uh, uh, 
to save uh, information about victims of uh, Stalin's repressions. And uh, second, uh, second role is to protect human rights. Lately, Orlov started speaking out against the war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, he worked and cooperated with the uh, Russian government. He was a member of some uh, civil society uh, branches of uh, presidential administration of uh, Russian government and he cooperated them but uh, after Russian invasion to Ukraine in 2014 he opposed it openly Arlov was sentenced for post in Facebook it was a reason of his sentencing uh, in which he declared that Russia become a classic fascist state. And he repeat this point in his uh, last, you know, in, in a court. He again repeat that Russia is a fascist state with a situation is dire for human rights, for freedom of the press, for freedom of discussion, so on and so forth. Following the imprisonment of other dissidents and the recent death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, Orlov's sentencing sends a strong message to the Russian public that dissent will not be tolerated. Orlov himself decried what he called the strangulation of freedom in modern Russia. We live in the 21st century. Those guys are going backwards to 20th, 17th, even 16th. Unfortunately, they are dragging our country with them. But we will win anyway. During closing arguments in court, Orlov said that modern Russia has become a dystopia. In the wake of a coup last year, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, imposed sanctions on Niger. The sanctions were an attempt to punish the military junta and restore democracy. Neighboring countries' borders with Niger were closed. Cross-border business and financial transactions, including the transmission of electricity, stopped. Niger's assets were frozen and aid payments halted. This all stopped on Saturday. There was a decision by ECOWAS to suspend the sanctions against Niger and ease sanctions on Mali and Guinea for humanitarian reasons. ECOWAS said its decision will pave the way for talks with the three countries' military juntas. Some analysts, though, are skeptical the decision will have much effect. Timothy Obezu reports from Abuja. 48 hours after ECOWAS announced its decision, there's excitement over the development in Niger and parts of northern Nigeria affected by the measure. ECOWAS unfroze Niger's assets in West Africa, suspended border closures, and ended the no-fly zone for commercial flights to and from Niger. Idayat Hassan, a senior associate for the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, says the decision should make life easier for average people in Niger. There is actually expected to be like an improvement in the economy of this country, particularly when it comes to Nigeria and Niger. The sanctions were the regional bloc's response to the July ouster of Niger's president, Mohamed Bazoum, by the military. But the measure, considered the most stringent meted out on any member state, hit Niger hard. The extreme poverty rate in Niger has surpassed 40% according to the World Bank. The regional body said Saturday its decision to suspend sanctions was based on humanitarian considerations and to enable further dialogue with Niger's military hunter. 
ECOWAS has been struggling to stop a wave of military takeovers and political crisis rocking West Africa. Last month, Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso, all governed by hunters, announced withdrawal from ECOWAS, criticizing the bloc's sanctions on military government. Political analyst Ahmed Buhari says it is unlikely that lifting sanctions will change those countries' position. I think the, the real question is, does Niger, Burkina Faso and Mali even care about the, the lifting of the sanctions? The thing is, these guys have moved on. These guys have put their acts together. These guys have a roadmap, they have a direction. Our approach on foreign affairs uh, relationship with those countries, um, especially as headed by um, ECOWAS, was flawed right from the beginning. In September, Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso created a bloc known as the Alliance of Sahel States. Last week, the alliance announced it was creating a confederation and could launch a joint currency soon. Buhari said if that happens, it will have serious consequences for regional integration and development. Timothy Obiezu, Fioe News, Abuja, Nigeria. And finally today, on the other side of Africa, the UN Environment Assembly, known as UNEA-6, is meeting in Nairobi this week to chart solutions to the triple planetary crises of climate change, biodiversity loss, and pollution. Juma Manjaga reports from the UN Environment Headquarters in Nairobi. Founded in 2012, the UN Environment Assembly brings together all the 193 UN member states with the aim of fostering multilateral solutions to global environmental challenges. This is the sixth session of the Assembly. Leila Benali is the president of UNEA 6 and the Minister for Energy Transition and Sustainable Development of Morocco. Today, In 2024, the international community is looking to us to deliver. This is our moment to advance the global environmental agenda. Previous UNEA meetings have produced more than 90 resolutions on various global environmental issues. Inga Andersen is the executive director of the United Nations Environment Programme. It is time to lay political differences aside time to focus on this little blue planet, this little planet that is teeming with life, and lift our sights to the common goal, securing a pathway to a future that is safe and sustainable. The meeting of the world's highest environmental decision-making body comes at a time when there has been an increase in the effects of climate change, especially in Africa, despite the continent producing fewer carbon emissions than any other. International discussions on environmental issues are often influenced by political undertones that analysts say can impact such talks, with more than 60 countries, including the US, heading to the polls this year. Environmentalists are bracing for wide-ranging outcomes. In a response to a VOA question during a news conference, the UNEP boss expressed her optimism in voters' decision. I hope that when people go into the voting booth, that they will take the future with them in their heart and their grandchild or their daughter or son with them in their hand. Because when we vote, we're not just voting for today, we are also voting for tomorrow. And tomorrow is where the environment either is vibrant or not. Environment leaders agree that UNEA 6 
cannot solve the planet's environmental problems overnight, they are nevertheless hopeful that the assembly will help focus minds and energies on finding solutions. Juma Majanga, VOA News, Kenya. And that's going to do it for today's program. There's more VOA coverage 24 hours a day on our website, voanews.com, and across our social media platforms. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thanks for listening. Until tomorrow, I'm Steve Karish. Stay up to date with VOA Podcasts. Each weekday, International Edition covers the world's biggest stories, while Flashpoint Iran and Flashpoint Ukraine examine their respective regions in depth every week.